Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir. I know who I am. Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I have a plan. I like this shit. You know what's off, bro? It is your destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week marks the beginning of Atlantic SC's Guillermo del Toro retrospective. And to do so, we're going to be talking about Kronos and Mimic in that order. And we also brought on a special guest from Real Spoilers podcast. Say hello to Mr. Kevin Brackett. How are you, sir? Hey, guys. It's so great to finally talk to you in person after what seems like an eternity of online conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is this cool. negative space in which we know all these names floating around. And we have a vague idea how people are in real life. And then finally you see their face and it, you just feel relief wash over you that that's not a psychopath. Right. <laughs> right that I wasn't actually. Some weird bot that you're interacting with with all the time. Right, I was going to say, isn't it nice that I didn't catfish you guys? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes you kind of hope. <laughs> yeah, right. In your heart of hearts. Yeah. yeah. There's always two stories to tell. <laughs> so this is going to be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This one was a long time coming. We were supposed to do a David Fincher retrospective mm-hmm. and Lee and I were talking and we were like, why the fuck are we doing that? He's not even putting out a movie this year. Yeah. But then Mindhunter came out. That would have been fun. And then when The Shape of Water was announced and apparently been getting great reviews, reviews i was like this is our chance i love del toro's films why not do that it'd be interesting to talk about blade 2 yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird because it's like it's i guess it's different from pta i've seen nothing of his at the time we did the retrospective so it was literally right, a yeah. building circumstance of what the fuck is next i have no idea this time i've seen blade 2 i've seen the first hellboy and i've seen both of those at a time where i can't tell you for sure what the fuck happens in them uh <laughs> i i've seen pan Sabrinth more recently than anything so like i was you know that one's fresh at least uh pacific rim i've seen that when it came out so like i like i have a grasp there's a difference this time and lucky you bastard fuck got to see shape of water not oh too yeah long ago. But then, yeah then i cheated and uh now i have seen shape of water before everybody else so. well i don't i don't want to brag but i am going to see it early next week so i'm looking forward to it yeah oh, motherfuckers <laughs> man i have to wait till december no. fuck my life december yeah oh. man well that's why yep. i had to see it before fucking and the uk release yeah, for it is in february, february. Oh, uh, wow. so i mean yeah. if, in our original schedule for this retrospective we were going to be like whacking them out every week leading up to Shape of Water. Probably not going to end up that way this time, but at least now, at some point, we can do it before February. Yeah. It looks really cool. Yeah. I saw that trailer probably a month ago or so before another film, and I, I just was like, what is this? It looked amazing. And then I saw Del Toro was attached, which when I saw, like, the <laughs> fish creature, like, I'm like... It all made sense. That looks like a Del Toro thing, and then yeah, it was... Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to talk about it, because, it, it you know... I want to give people the chance to actually fucking see it. Yeah, no spoilers. That's a different show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that only. <laughs> well, I mean, the way that we're going to structure the retrospective itself is like we, like we did for Paul Thomas Anderson. The early stuff, we're actually going to uh, pair them together. So like today's going to be Kronos and Mimic. Our plan is to also do Devil ba- Devil's Backbone and Blade 2. Then after that, we're going to be pairing the Hellboys together. And then 
we're going to do Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak. Am I missing anything in there, Lee, so far? No? No, just the, the solo episode for Pan's Labyrinth, and that's it. Add that shape of water. Cool. So, I think we should move into Cronus. No, mi amor, no es de chocolate, no. Una cosa como esta ocurre una sola vez en la vida. Una sola vez en la vida. All right, so Cronus is directed by Guillermo del Toro, released in 1993, and it starred the now late uh, Federico Lupi, Ron Perlman, some woman that likes to dance, another old guy with uh, body parts lying around, and a young kid. Uh, This is del Toro's first feature film. I think he had worked a little bit in television uh, before. And he did uh, three short films. I think that was his in for yeah. getting this feature. But yeah, I think he was 28 when he made Kronos. Yeah, and it was the biggest budgeted Mexican film at the time at $2 million. That's right. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, he had apparently a lot of trouble getting it off the ground. Somewhat similar to Pan's Labyrinth when you think about it. Every time a guy tries to put out something original, it almost kills him. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, okay. I dude, mean, how do you, how you, do you sell it? You know? The Adventures of Vampire Jesus. I don't think many people are going to get on board with that on the pitch meeting. <laughs> oh, exactly. All right, cool. So let's toss this over to Kevin. What was your initial reaction to Cronus? So I had seen this film a long time ago. I think I rewatched it maybe a couple of years ago. And so uh, I watched the Criterion edition of it just a couple days ago. Um, I loved the movie. I loved it just as much as the first time I saw it. Um, I mean, the, the underlying uh, tone that I get from it, I mean, right off the bat, I get something like uh, the Fountain of Youth. Uh, I definitely get themes of like, you know, ever everlasting life, searching for this uh, fountain of youth and then also vampires i mean when you see when you see the guy hanging upside down and hit the blood pooling uh in the guy's apartment or house right after the initial scene and then also obviously as we go through the movie you see that uh blood is something that's necessary human blood uh and so those were really the two takeaways that i got from it and uh, i just i thought that it was a brilliant first outing uh for a director i really really strong yeah it's it's definitely the uh the the hanging man uh, that uh, sent sirens in my brain. Like the moment that film started, I was like, "All right, this is cool. They've gotten a, they're getting a little technical. You know, there's a lot of little mysticism going on here." And holy fucking shit, that's a corpse! It's dripping blood. <laughs> what the fuck is this? I was like, 
<laughs> is he getting into like tarot? There's a tarot card that's like the hanged man. I was like, is it, are we going down that avenue right off the fucking bat? But uh, immediately I was like, oh, he's not fucking laying down for this first one. You know, this, this is like straight off the bat. He is not pulling any punches with regards to like folk stories and imagery and shit like that. And that, that was great to see because when you know the, the later El Toro and you know how much detail goes into his films and how much uh, special effects play a large part into his films to see that that was there from the beginning of his first feature for a director to come out of the gate with a film that looks as good as this that stands up as well as this that uh, genuinely flows and tells a decent story i hadn't really seen anywhere else as firmly as this and it's incredible it, it really took me by surprise and you mentioned and, and i forgot to even say though the uh, aside from the look of it and how professional it was for a first outing you, you talked about his special effects background and being able to create things what an amazing job on the practical effects of the skin and the you know the blood and oh, just yeah. all that stuff it looked amazing and again this is this guy's first feature film i it, it just blows me away to think that this is the first one because uh i mean it, it reminds me of someone i mean very different genre but like uh quentin tarantino Tino coming out of the gate with Reservoir Dogs. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. I love everything that you guys had to say because, uh, you know, I had seen bits and parts of Cronus and it's not even when it came out in 93. I think the first time I watched a Del Toro film was Blade 2. No, actually, no, I'd seen Mimic in 1997 when it came out and I didn't know (laughs) who the hell that guy was. So, I mean, it was all right. It wasn't... it left an impression, but, but that's it. It was funny because it's exactly what I was trying to get at is the fact that I wasn't introduced to his auteur work until later. Mm. You know, you get into it, you're like, Mimic, all right, cool, Blade 2, all right. Then you shift into Hellboy, but you skip over two really important films in Kronos and the Devil's Backbone that are very representative of what he wants to do. Where he's constantly going back to this gothic horror nature mm-hmm. uh, of most of his films, you know, with Pan's Labyrinth. Now The Shape of Water seems to be something like that. Crimson Peak is clearly gothic horror romance. And so, I don't know. I mean, when I sat down to watch it, I had seen bits and pieces, like I said, like maybe in my 20s sometime. And I, I, Lee, Lee, we were talking and you said, oh, you've probably already seen this before. And then you caught me off guard because I was like, have I? I think I have. But now <laughs> sitting down to rewatch it, I noticed that I, I'd seen like two scenes and that's it. Yeah. I had never really experienced it. It was you know. weird because like the way you were talking about Kronos before you rewatched it, was I knew someone a lot of it. mild indifference, <laughs> someone of, of a general yeah. like optimism, but unsure at nature. And I watched it just before you did. And I was going, this is a film that Jason will fucking love. I don't know. why He, he must be thinking of something else because <laughs> this film is, is, screams to his fucking, like, his forte into fairy tales and shit like that. This is all the shit he likes to talk about. Why isn't he, like, pumped to revisit Kronos, you know? And so it made a lot of sense when you got through it and we're like, oh, wait. I don't think I've seen this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I knew of it, you know. I knew a lot about mm-hmm. it. I knew a lot about, like, the production around it and all that. And you're right. You're 100% right. I hadn't really experienced it in its, in it, you know, in its entirety. And this was great, man. I, I love the fucking movie so much. Now I really want that trilogy on Criterion. Because mm-hmm. I haven't uh, – I remember a friend of mine who lives in Montreal had given me a copy of The Devil's Backbone. And he says it's horror, so you might want to get to it eventually knowing the full you know the fact that i i hate horror i can't yeah, stand it uh, and um so i'm looking forward to watching that now because at, 
it seems like you know he's going to be recycling a lot of the themes and like you said fairy tale stuff so chronos oh man jesus christ there's so much to unpack in this movie and it's going to be such a fun too much film to yeah do. that's that's sort of the disclaimer well we'll bring something to this dear audience and uh we'll try and keep a conversation going about little chipping in bits and pieces as we go along just to try and keep it free-flowing the idea is that we have to tackle it from something rather than everything or nothing cool i agree with that i want to see what kevin thinks about this to see what kind of what kind of stuff he pulled up yeah um so you know this is such this is not what i would call a traditional vampire movie but then on the other hand it seems like there's a lot of vampire stuff there so when i rewatched it i didn't really remember it being a quote-unquote vampire movie but like we talked about earlier like lee said i mean there's a guy hanging upside down in uh, the the main guy's apartment uh the guy that uh, i guess invented this chronos machine uh he's lived for hundreds of years and then eventually he dies um and and uh, not not because of the age thing but through a series of events unrelated and uh they find this guy hanging and dripping this blood down in his apartment um but in this movie you never see anyone bitten on the neck Right. So it's not that kind of traditional. It's not uh, you bite someone, they become a vampire. But then you see the main character throughout the film. He's he's anytime he finds little I mean, he's drawn to blood. You can tell that he craves it. And, uh, and when someone's nose bleeds, he is literally licking the blood up off the floor, which it's funny that yeah. that's one of the more gross scenes in the movie. And it's not even graphic. It's the fact of uh, licking blood, human blood, any kind of blood, but off of a bathroom floor. Right. It's just like, oh, <laughs> So yeah, I you know, and I but I really like it how it's like a different twist on the vampire film because we've seen so many and so many of them go down the same roads, you know, it's the same, you know, you bite someone, they turn into a vampire, then they start uh, you know, they have an they're an apprentice or whatnot and they start biting other people and and feeding on them. So I really like how they did kind of a vampire thing but didn't make it uh, predictable like the others. Um, but then, I mean, the main, the really the main theme I think is even more overwhelming than just being a vampire movie is this search for eternal life. And obviously our main character in the film, uh, once he is, uh, can we say bitten by the bug? I don't want to be so corny, but uh, you know, once <laughs> once once he is bitten by the Kronos machine, uh, he just instantly he feels different, and uh, the, this machine gives him uh, this more youth youth like uh, appearance and feeling. Uh, he shaves his mustache, he looks and acts younger. You know, then the vampire stuff comes in, and he's craving blood, and he needs to feed, and you know, but but it's all about not dying because every time that he gets near death or he does. Uh, for all intents and purposes, die, uh, you know, he's brought back by this machine. And it, and it almost becomes another uh, comparison I saw was like to Gollum and the ring and Lord of the Rings. I feel like the Kronos machine is this coveted object that uh, he's drawn nice. to and he can't, he, you know, can't let go of it. And so the Lord of the Rings thing, which is funny that, you know, Del Toro was set to uh, direct and you know the hobbit movies i just found a funny uh maybe coincidence yeah, there there's a, there's an appeal there for him yeah <laughs> but that, yeah he is playing on and on vampire tropes and i'll be getting into it in my own stuff as well you know because uh, I, it, it is something that's kind of fun uh, that we're going to be talking about a little bit later in terms of hybridity the fact that del toro is actually mixing and matching so many different Definitely. aspects of folklore 
and bringing in the vampire. And I love the fact that you're using it as well and talking about the Lord of the Rings because I hadn't even seen that. And it is. It is like the One Ring. Is Everyone's looking for it. They're all going to turn into some form of golem at the end as well. And so mm-hmm. there is that. So yeah, man, good pull. That's fantastic. You know, And I think you have stuff to say about folklore as well. Lisa, how about we jump over to you? Definitely. It's funny as well because when you bring up Lord of the Rings, there was a book I was reading. I'm going to be sort of referencing it throughout. Uh, the book was called Ambiguity and Fairy Tales. And uh, it actually does, uh, one of the articles in it references Lord of the Rings as this sort of separation between folklore into like a, a, a genre of fantasy uh, that's both separate from the fairy tale and magic realism which is something more closer to what Kronos is uh, so it's really like it's it's weird to see that sort of parallel that they all kind of connect in this in this sort of way all these stories kind of communicate with one another and yet at the same time we can kind of distinctly pull them apart into different avenues. Uh, and what was funny about like the vampire thing is because Vampire Jesus is my favorite part of this. <laughs> like when we get to the when we get to the uh the halfway mark, I, I I'm struggling to remember what exactly was the giveaway, the tip off. It was either the it going through his hand and then later his heart, probably the prayer at the staircase. Something like that. We get a lot of indications that Jesus here is, in fact, some sort of form or allegory that kind of compares to Jesus. Which is funny, uh, because obviously it's not a one-to-one thing. This is not this is not Jesus. But there's, like, tail ends. There's little bits of connection there as well. It all spins around how folk tradition and stories work. Uh, and to me, that's uh, that was what was most interesting about the film and what I wanted to sort of focus on talking about today. Because, I mean, Vampire Jesus is the key here. That's kind of the, the two words, you know, the, the, the amalgamation right there of Vampire and Jesus gives you a lot about this film going into it that helps you kind of take it apart. So, I mean, we know with our crystal ball del toro likes his folk st- stories you know and and, his, and especially his fairy tales and it's bound to be something that we'll focus on or revisit later in the retrospective but messing with the mode of storytelling seems to have been his modus operandi right from the beginning and with this film while it does dabble in ambiguity which is one of those sort of all-encompassing terms that the fairy tale uses it's the t- t- typical fairy tale is very ambiguous in its morals not supposed to be didactic i don't believe it qualifies as an out-and-out fairy tale. It, it probably falls into magic realism, as I was saying, and I've got a quote from that book, from an article, actually, from Tracy D. Lucasowitz? Jason's Redder 2, I don't know if you've... Bless you. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce that name? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, who herself, anyway, was breaking down Wendy B. Farris, who has a far more easily to pronounce name. Uh, and the quote is she describes the essence of magical realism to make the fantastical appear an ordinary occurrence in the real world fairy tales on the other hand make the magical a normal part of life but rarely venture into the real world the normal instead resides fully within the fairy tale world which does not resemble the everyday one so while she does describe the genre as undoubtedly influenced by fairy tales the crossover leans heavier here on myths and folklore and that's kind of where the, the angle I want to push this a little when we talk about Kronos is that we're not talking like Pan's Labyrinth, fairy tale. We're talking more heavier on folk tradition and oral tradition storytelling. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The folk story aspect is important to focus on because that helps us get a foothold in what Del Toro is trying to say here. When we think folk story, the best thing we should be thinking is, as Jason will probably go on to say, hybridization, amalgamations of stories and features 
that are passed down from generation to generation all merge and become and warp into different types of things depending on your regional variants and so on. And something that I, I don't have any quote from but I do want to reference or shout out to here is that when I was in university and studying kind of folk traditions a book that helped me get my head around it was Leslie Marmon Silko's Storyteller. Uh, she's yeah. a Native Native American writer, and uh, she delves into a lot of the, the the sort of folk stories that she was told being raised in America at the time. Uh, that's a great book. So and it's, yeah, so but I mean, if you want to look at um, uh, how this hybridization works, I mean, we could all think of like great examples. The biggest one, and I think, when you think about fairy tales, which took on a lot of folk traditions and warped into these sort of ambiguous stories. We can see what Disney did to them, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, when you think of the original stories of Cinderella and Snow White, there was a lot more violence. Yeah. There was a lot more cruelty involved. Yeah, I'm a, hu- I'm a huge Disney fan. So uh, my wife and I both love Disney movies. Uh, we went twice last year. We went this year. I'm going in a couple weeks. Like, we love to go down there. Uh, but the f- the films are something I've grown up with. And so they were my introduction to these fairy tales, you know? Uh, but, uh, yeah, when you research them and you look up Grimm's fairy tales and you find out that in Cinderella, like, uh, the stepmom cuts off the daughter's toes and heels yeah. so they can fit in the heel. And, and like, in Little Mermaid, uh, like, I think the mermaid was mermaids were luring sailors to their death. Is that right? And those, like, there's <laughs> yeah. so many of those weird things in those uh, Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen tales that have been adapted to kids movies and now are the most famous version of them and beloved and and super G-rated just like you know um, it's it's yeah funny. I mean that was that was exactly what like Disney was trying to get across especially in the early ones was that sort of realizing that fairy tales at that point had become something that we actually taught kids he was trying to make them more didactic which was like something in the way that he wanted them to be like teaching material you know and in his mind, the best way to do that was to make them very conservative fairy tales that focus on sort of family values and traditional values and trying, trying to set a base level in kids of how to react when they grow up. My point is, like, so I mean, to quote Pauline Greenhill and Sydney Eve Matrix in their essay on envisioning ambiguity in regards to fairy tale films, with each reinterpretation, incorporation, and transposition of these familiar stories, tellers create new tales to serve contemporary needs. And that's that's kind of the grain, that's the crux I'm going to be getting at here with regards to Kronos. But I mean, let's first sort of set a base of the elements in the film, starting with the vampire. For the most part, our modern vampire is usually associated as a tyrant of sexuality, obviously culminating in the masterpiece that is the Twilight series. But oh, I mean, going, that... fuck you. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was going to say going back, a favorite of mine on VHS was Interview with a Vampire. You've got that, well, Brad that, Pitt well, and I mean, Tom Cruise, If you Cruise, want to be right? obvious about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's exactly it. You know, like that's that's updating the, the Bram Stoker Dracula yeah, idea, yeah. you know, and that's there's a lot more sexuality in those ones. And even if you look at John Polidori's The Vampire, he's also this sort of sexual character who sort of storms around all these parties in the, I'm going to say, Victorian, not entirely sure, time period. but uh, And in and Bram Stoker's da- Dracula, doesn't he have, like, all these harems of women vampires? That's what I mean. I mean, yeah. all so over like, the place, yeah. That was, that, that was the modern association of the vampire by that point. But that actually doesn't feature in Kronos, you'll notice, you know. The, Are you saying you didn't find the grandpa extremely sexual? <laughs> I mean, when that mustache is gone, boy oh boy. <laughs> uh loopy my my <laughs> but um i mean we, d- we do get one hint at it in the film uh with regards to sort of his renewed sexual figure when he kind of flirts with his wife again after shaving his mustache so it's there 
but the story really isn't about that. It's not a vampire story about how he's getting it, getting it on again, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's funny because that helps us identify what kind of vampire we're talking about here. That is far more like the folk tradition vampires that comes from all these regional places because more often than not, the folk vampire wasn't sexually based. He was more just a general terror that plays into a lot of different regional differences depending on where the story was being told. For example, think about the Mesopotamians. They had Lamastu. Uh, this is the daughter of the sky god Anu, who would not only kill young children, but also attack young men and drain their blood. She's a figure often associated with Lilith. We actually talked a bit about Lilith regarding the succubus in uh, Under the Skin. But yeah, there's sort of an overlap there. And uh, when it comes to the Mexican, we've got the Tawapuchi, a shape-shifting bloodsucker of infants that lives in family units and are near impossible to detect without catching in the act. So, I mean, there's another one. There's also the 12th century English revenants, which William of Newburgh told about in his story Ghost of Anand, and I'm taking this from uh, a article called Walking Dead in Medieval England by Stephen R. Gordon. But the quick version is that being the corpse of a jealous cuckolded husband, he brings pestilence to the town after death as a revenant, this sort of vengeful demon, uh, until two boys find the corpse suffused with blood and realize he's a bloodsucker. And so rip out his heart and burn him in half, one of the alternatives to staking, which was, I think, predominantly Slavic rather than this one. Now, did you say burn him in half? Uh, no, I did say burn him in half. <laughs> that's you very... Know, I think that's I'm very, kind of quoting. That's very specific. I, well, I <laughs> that is weird, yeah. I'm pretty Just sure... gas on the belly button. <laughs> pretty sure I just meant to say burn <laughs> or cut in half, then burn. Probably not burning half. That's okay. I just like, was wondering because that's an oddly <laughs> like, specific way to take care of a vampire. I've never heard. <laughs> they always try to, like, that's the weird thing about these folk stories. They always try to make it more difficult than it right. ever has to be. Like, oh God, they're so hard to get rid of. I mean, you have to literally cook only half of them. <laughs> that's frustrating. Uh, so, I mean, and what's interesting in all these traditions is how the interpretation behind each of these creatures varies so readily. The ghost and Anant being concerned with pestilence, and the other two are more about childbirth defects. They were used kind of to explain away you know, miscarriages and those that kind of like crib death as well was another one. Uh, so I mean that's not to dismiss Polidori's version because here I have a quote from uh, Lord Byron in his story that it's literally in the story, uh, but it's from Byron's book called Giar or Giar. <laughs> I'm doing really well with the pronunciations today. <laughs> that's all right. You're doing better than me. So go for it. Uh, and so I've got this quick, uh, it's like a little poem thing. So yeah, it's funny because a lot of it does kind of fall into Kronos. So the poem goes, But first on earth as vampire sent, thy course shall from its tomb be rent. Then ghastly haunt the native place and suck the blood of all thy race. There from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life. Yet loathe the banquet which, perforce, must feed thy livid living corpse. Course, <laughs> course. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered on the stem. But one that for thy crime must fall, the youngest, best beloved of all, shall bless thee with a father's name, and that word shall wrap thy heart in flame. Yet thou must, and I'm going to cut it there, because the next parts have little to do with what I wanted to talk about, but just the, <laughs> the point is, they ki he kills that that beloved little granddaughter, and that's interesting. Well, I kind of interesting, kind of overlaps with Kronos. Is what that poem was saying was basically you get cursed for life for being a fucking vampire. You know, once yeah, you're bitten, yeah. you end up taking it out on your family, not just not just something that you know you take it out on strangers or, or the rich people in the city who have the the best bodies. 
You take it out on your family. Uh, well, and that's and that's something that a lot of vampire movies get into. And I mean, they definitely touch upon it here with his relationship with the granddaughter is that, uh, you know, people that aren't vampires want to be vampires for this eternal life. But then once a vampire understands what they're in for that you're going to outlive all your friends and family they're all going to die around you you're going to have yeah. to uh, you know hunt around for blood and, and do that whole thing eat rats or whatever if you're not gonna uh <laughs> kill people um, you're right and i mean that that moral was uh expanded upon in the seminal work that is twilight where uh, i mean that decision isn't dangerous it's Hot. Oh. <laughs> Keep mentioning Twilight, you're going to be like that guy hanging from the rafters in the beginning of <laughs> all, all, all literary works have to be taken with equal measure, oh. especially the popular ones, unfortunately. Uh, Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, in the poem, you know, we, we get hints that uh, Del Toro might have been actually used in regards to the Kronos finale. I mean, ignoring the blonde hair, the granddaughter, most beloved of all, who blesses Jesus' death with a father's name. is literally the only word she says in the film is grandfather. I mean, that's mm -hmm. there's kind of that thread there. Yet the later description of a handsome, violent vampire in that poem that you didn't get to hear, <laughs> ripping it up and living a life of hell with other demons... That's not really there, you know, and and especially with the rest of Polidori's work about the handsome vampire that this guy has to go out and find. Also not really in Kronos. Moving from that, let's talk about Jesus. Not Jesus, Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, there's there's obviously the illusions there, nailed in the hands, the heart, the feet, praying to God, returning from the grave a couple of days, maybe, I assume nobody really knows later. On, and on revelation to his granddaughter, he, he, he lowers his shroud and puts it over his back in that, uh, you know, Obi-Wan space Jesus move that we're all familiar with. <laughs> so, I mean, what what's the connection is 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 the question that will, like, why? Why Jesus? Uh, when I was watching this film at first. And, I mean, when you think about it, Jesus, too, is often one of the most debated figures, like the vampire, you know, depiction-wise, at least. From the Jewish interpretation, uh, you know, he's a prophet. He's not exactly, he's not the Messiah to the Christian depiction of the Son of God, to the establishment of Jesus as a myth in the 18th century French works of Constantine Volney and Charles Dupuis. Then there's debating of his word and contents of the Bible, which happens in every fucking denomination of Christianity, you know, from fucking Catholicism to Protestantism, Orthodoxy, Baptism. And then there's people, word of mouth even de de deteriorates that word. So we get fucking cults and shit, like you know, groups of people that specialize in different interpretations of the Bible, like Mormonism, yeah. Who... and Westboro Baptist Church and the KKK and it goes on and on and on like Jesus is a hotly contested figure <laughs> for what the fuck he means to people just like the vampire I mean some people see vampires as hot sexy Twilight characters and some see them as these sort of miserable blights on childbirth I mean that's a pretty large schism but that's how people interpret things over time the, the point is that most of these elements from the movie draws on depictions of things elsewhere and shapes them into a narrative with or without their various shifting interpretations even the scarab uh, is often associated with the sun god Ra in Egyptology uh, yep. and in myth And but he was all, it was also like an amulet it also warded off bad fucking spirits it was jewellery for a while it was like a fashion trend in Egypt for a period I mean like that's that's a mixed signal as it is like are scarabs just cool now is that what it is but, but when you think about that that, that association with the sun god Ra, uh, uh, an embodiment of the life and death powers of Ra at that point, much like the dung beetle and how it sort of recycled dirt and became new again. There's kind of that clear image in this film with the scarab, which is interesting. And I have a Del Toro quote from 2008 that kind of sheds a little light on it. 
Uh, he's not actually talking about the scarab, but he's talking about uh, fairy tales and how they get sanitized over time. Uh, but you can't help but see the parallel. Uh, the quote is, The one thing that alchemy understands and fairy tale lore understands is that you need the file matter for magic to flourish. You need lead to turn it into gold. You need the two things for the process. So when people sanitize fairy tales and homogenize them, they become completely uninteresting for me. So you see that alchemy, just like what creates the the, the Kronos device in this film, is kind of in his mental process, that idea of, of turning crap fairy tales into like good, interesting stories and not sanitizing them. There's there's this there's something in his methodology that encourages that. And I mean, think about the process of the Kronos device. Uh, a literal insect that draws blood encased in its own shiny amulet of a shell created by an alchemist, granting life an accursed existence. It's the distilled burden of life and death and that ambiguity between it all in an insect machine form. It's it's referred to as a god by Jesus, but it's kind of pulls in that Ra symbolism. It all all these things mix in this this hodgepodge of like crazy folk and fairy tale traditions mixing together and creating a whole different kind of story. And all these layers involved, surely you would expect the payoff to be massive. How could it not? The cosmic powers of life and death all within the cells in the story itself. And to me, the story was about how smoking kills. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which kind of seems a little bit anticlimactic. I can't wait to hear how you got there. <laughs> But I mean, obviously, I mean, uh, that's, it's obviously more than that. It's like distrusting corporations, distancing oneself from those who use religion to promote themselves, green lust for youth and family, like Kevin was saying, uh, that sort of danger of seeking life too late. All these kind of, these ideas are there, but the real point is it's an updating of all of these things. That's what the story's really doing. It's, it's recontextualizing these traditional ideas into what is contemporary and modern for today, just like the actual fairy tales and traditional folk stories would have done at the time so it's it's very much carrying on that carrying that torch and that ambition to really keep folk storytelling alive and i think one of the most interesting morals that we can get from the film by perceiving that is one that's relevant to the time that the film came out which was that smoking is a dangerous habit that is essentially a gateway to other drugs and can kill you. And I'll explain a little why i came to that conclusion because otherwise it sounds like i'm leaping off fucking nothing because i like <laughs> Does 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 Jesus even fucking smoke a cigarette in the film? No, I don't think so. But he does talk about cigarettes for a while. Uh, the idea is the film talks about his struggle with vices. I mean, Jesus confesses a story to Aurora about how his father attempted to stop Jesus from smoking. And what he does is he empties the cigarettes into a toilet or into the bathroom and it's all scattered across the floor. And Jesus says that it didn't actually stop him from smoking, but... It was that act of realizing that his son wanted him to stop that encouraged him to be better. And that's what sent the message more than the actual act of robbing him of the cigarettes. So we set a sort of groundwork at that point that Jesus struggles with a form of at least drug or solvent dependency at one point or another. He might not be uh, struggling with tobaccoism at this point, uh, or at least we can't uh, see it without, you know, inferring some symbolism, but... His immediate draw to the Kronos device here and how it hooks into his veins, we're kind of seeing a parallel with, say, for something like heroin, you know? Looking for more spots, he sinks the device into his chest and his heart. He bandages his arms, that kind of hide. His skin starts to fall off. He becomes pale and white underneath and sheeny after going a, like a veiny purple color, you know? That all kind of uh, a playful 
I guess, look at how, like, drug dependency affects your body, you know, your skin and your look, you know, you get that leathery skin that you get when you smoke too much, you know, there's there's that in there. And he gains new vices from it, and I think we can kind of look at the blood-sucking scene in the bathroom as, as a symbolism there. I mean, that blood, that could be anything from desperation of the habit to even veiled sexual intercourse. But my, the idea is that he's obviously not doing something that's comfortable with him and his vice has gone too far. It's now introducing new vices to him. Yeah. Yet with his habit, he can still live on. And now with the facilitation of his granddaughter, who he tells the story to to get the Kronos device back, he's kind of pulling her into the mix. Mm. And that's when the story starts to really spiral out of control because after that he shortly gets fucking killed and uh, he has to come back to life and you know he goes to the payphone he calls his family to try to get back his family are dead to him he's basically even if we look at Ron Perlman's character here he's almost like a drug dealer who comes to collect that beating he gets is him getting punished for not being able to keep up with the feist so it's all linked into this device and and we can even pull we can go further than that and we can look at the corporation of the uh, De La Guardia being you know the the tobacco company themselves and their input on this how the advertising pulls you in and how it tries to yeah. it, get you into the, the habit itself or it could be about like drug lords and how they basically run a, an industry hidden away in an abandoned fucking warehouse you know you could you could you could work a pile of shit into that if we look at how the the film kind of tries to draw close to that story it's good in a way that he ultimately redeems his humanity but it's also kind of ambiguous because he does ultimately bring aurora into it all and i mean she volunteers to come along but she ends up in that ring killing a man so i mean that's definitely you know that's the cycle that drug dependency can bring your family into more than the literal, you, your family will end up killing people. I don't think that's the necessary takeaway. <laughs> hey, and don't forget uh, Ron Perlman's addiction to plastic surgery. Oh, uh, well, of course. Everybody's I'll got their I'll be bringing vices. that up later, yeah. The damage might be already too late at the point where Jesus tries to redeem himself, but think about the last interaction between him and Aurora. They've finally taken on the corporation. He's almost getting over his vice because he's now gotten out of his drug deal, if we look at it in the sort of symbolic way. His confrontation there is that he's now kind of dying without his supply and aurora offers her hand to him with blood between okay so here's an interesting symbolism of this image okay because both we have the granddaughter offering herself up to his vice so we've got this idea that he can't get drugs but if he needs them so badly maybe the granddaughter will get involved herself and that's worrying obviously that's where your family does not want to go and that's where jesus tries to draw the line, but think about where the blood is in her fingers as she holds her hand extended. It's like a V-shape, and the blood runs down between two two fingers on either side. If you think about the way she's holding her hand, that's how you would hold a cigarette. When you take a draw, that's how like you hold the cigarette between your fingers before you take a drag. That's That, to me, is what gives it kind of away. It's all symbolic of that one gateway drug, and she, he could start again. And he sees that and realizes the damage it's done to his family, and it stops it all and finally destroys the Cronus device, this enabling device. And so finally he dies and he gets the sort of redemption death that he desired. His family get to see him for the man he is instead of the closed-off funeral where they don't really see him at all. And that's finally brings that story to a close. Ultimately, Del Toro's talking about here is that unlike the open-ended nature of Pan's Labyrinth, I think uh, Del Toro is more taking on a, a cautionary tale in a far more focused, didactic kind of way. You know, it's supposed to be like a teaching mechanism for that current generation of people who were... I mean, drug dependency and fucking tobaccoism have not gone anywhere. These are still big problems. Drug dependency is a huge fucking problem. All across the world, it keeps getting worse and worse. So, I mean, obviously that affected, uh, or I think, deep 
in the subtext of the film, that's what Del Toro was trying to address in Kronos. And as far as imagery goes, it's just one that's echoed a million times by a million different anecdotes, you know, how drug dependency (laughs) brings your family down. But it's the way he adapts that into folk imagery and symbolism and wraps it around these things. He's like, he wants to say, what's the most important thing we need to discuss today? What is the most relevant association we can make from a vampire? And I think that's what he's trying to say. It's about drug dependency and the dangers that poses. Wow. You know, I, that's, that's quite a take. I, you know, I think that uh, addiction, I think there's such an obvious uh, metaphor for addiction there. And I'm, 100% 100% on board. I uh, I never thought of it being cigarettes or drug related or that kind of thing. But I mean, just like with Mother, you've made your point. And it's, <laughs> it's, you've got me riveted. I mean, like this, this uh, the, the always the worrying thing is that somebody could listen to this at some point and go like like just after watching the film and go, wait a fucking minute, it's clearly about this. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's not even remote. Like he says about the cigarettes, it's more of a metaphor for taking your vitamins every day. Other, otherwise, you you get polio. <laughs> so like, yeah. could be something like that. And I'd be like, I well, I, you know, I don't have any fucking regional context of which to build that discussion. But at least but on I mean, what I, I know, drug dependency—that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's great. I, you know, something that I I want to touch upon that when we talk about this movie and blending of all the genres, I mean, what Del Toro has done here is he's created his own genre, so to speak, because it isn't just science fiction it isn't fairy tale and you know he, he's Definitely. created this thing that doesn't stand to these you know there's not these uh, traditional archetypes and uh you know we think oh this is a vampire but then he's not the sexy vampire uh <laughs> you know all, all all that stuff comes together to create this amazing original piece of work and one thing that i really like that del toro does as much science as there is because there's the device in this he doesn't explain how it works yeah well and i think the beauty that's of alchemy so much, how could you yes but that's it's so <laughs> yeah. much better unexplained because uh we live in this society with an access in, you know at our fingertips to information you can get on your phone you can get on your computer you can ask a robot you can just say hey siri <laughs> hey alexa and they just give you you know yeah. they can be vacuuming and your yet floor we don't actually and then... know how they work when we think about the, the specifics you know <laughs> So uh, most of us live unaware of how the fucking this magical robot society actually functions. So you're right. totally right. We but, all we all live with alchemy every day, and uh, yeah, he's just he's just it, reflecting that. <laughs> yeah, and so and so with all this access to information, we crave answers. And so there, I fall into two different categories when it comes to watching film. I like to watch certain films, like when there's uh, uh, something supposed to be set in the real world, and maybe it's an investigation, a detective story. I want answers because I want to solve the crime. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to solve as I'm watching the movie. Right, so. If if there's no answers and something is impossible and it's supposed to be set in the real world, that frustrates me. If there's a movie that's supposed to be a little more um, magical or fantastical, it's okay not to have answers. And uh, Del Toro actually has a really great quote. And as I was listening to the commentary of the next film we're going to talk about, Mimic, Del Toro says something really interesting. He says, quote, he's talking about the audience, but he says, they don't need to understand a movie. They need to live the movie, correct? (laughs) I mean, when was the last time you understood a movie and said it was great because you understood it? I say, fuck that shit. (laughs) (laughs) He flies on the face of our work. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's just, it's interesting. (laughs) But it's, it's interesting, though, that, you know, we have this, um, 
humans just like uh, this quest for for life and, and never-ending life with this chronos device or the fountain of youth whatever it may be we also have this never-ending quest for knowledge but sometimes uh, when it comes to storytelling and film i feel like you don't need every single bit explained to you to understand it and that's just what del toro says and uh unfortunately with studio interference and we'll get into it with the next film uh people want answers and so studio want people to be happy and so we get a lot of exposition we get a lot of things explained uh you guys just talked about blade runner what a perfect example uh when you think of the original blade runner and the theatrical cut with harrison ford spoon feeding you narration uh, and then in the director's cuts he takes that off because it's unnecessary let the people interpret let people uh make their own uh, opinions and decisions and uh you know find out for themselves don't just tell them how every little thing works definitely absolutely so before we get into mimic there's one last thing that i wanted to talk to you guys about and it, this uh oh this is a shout out to mark mark herney i was on criterion now yes. just recently and he he misses our crackpot theories and we just got one <laughs> from you and so i want to do mine now so this is going to be jason's crackpot yeah, theory I, going I, back I meant to, to i meant to address mark about that actually because you know we just because we don't call them crackpot theories anymore doesn't mean they went anywhere <laughs> every fucking episode exactly. is crackpot jesus christ <laughs> You guys yeah. didn't tell me to wear my tinfoil hat. <laughs> and yet you came prepared. You're obviously wearing it now. So, I mean, you're just ready for it. <laughs> yeah. So, this this is Jason's crackpot theory. And it's dedicated to uh, Mark Herney over at uh, Criterion Close-Up and the recurring guest on the First Time Watchers and also Criterion Now. And what I wanted to talk about is what the title of the film suggests in Kronos. You know, Kronos was the, 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 the physical manifestation of time. Uh, mm-hmm. When I think it was in Greek mythology, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, Philosoph- philosophical thing. There you go. And so I think that that's one of the most interesting aspects, the way that it works as a commodity in the film, the idea of investment and or debt. And so just bear with me. This is going to be a long one. You guys can chime in whenever you want. Uh, but I, I, I picked up on something and I had a lot of fun going and doing a lot of research on it. And so what I picked up on was the film that was released in 1993, but... The beginning of the film is set in the past. So we start the film in 1536. Then we jump to 1937, right? So we got 101 years there, Mm -hmm. which makes a palindrome. The idea of circularity again when we're talking about going (laughs) through. But then after that, the rest of the film is set in 1997, right? Mm -hmm. So for Del Toro, that's the future. So when I was reading up on the film, scholar Deborah Shaw said that uh, Del Toro felt that the NAFTA agreement that was implemented in 1994 had had terrible effects on Mexican culture, uh, on the economy, and that the country was invaded by media companies and that there was nothing to protect the Mexican people from everything that was going on in that moment in time. Now, to me, this kind of brings up vampirism again. <laughs> and so how the vampire, when I was talking about a little bit earlier, how the, like its, it's, its sole interest is self-preservation and perpetuation. So if we look at Cronus's vampire narrative, I think that it deals a little bit with how colonialism works as a means of buying and spending time for cultures to perpetuate throughout time. So if we use the vampire as a metaphor for buying or spending time, then for Mexico, Spanish colonialism is a past iteration of the vampire 
versus U.S. neocolonialism would be the future iteration of the vampire. So both these empires are seeking to perpetuate their culture as a means of self-preservation. Hmm. Now, because the film is being produced in 1992 and is released in 1993, I think that the sensibilities of the film are how NAFTA may affect U.S.-Mexico relations in the future, but based on a colonial perspective from the past. Okay? You guys follow me mm -hmm. up to there? So far, I mean, okay, my political yeah. discourse is a little rusty, but uh, vampires in politics, I, I can believe that any day. <laughs> <laughs> well, what that means to me is what I picked up on is that there's no real present time in Cronus. Mm. Okay. And what I mean by that is, is that Aurora herself, okay, except for her, all the characters are living in a different time period. Okay. So if you take Jesus, for example, he's an antiques dealer. Okay. So therefore he sells the past, but when he gets infected by the Cronus device, he becomes timeless or without time. Yeah. And because of his thirst for blood, he's always going to be focused on his next fix, which is kind of like a junkie at the beginning of the film. And so basically he's always headed towards the future and never really living in the present, right? So once he's done like wanting the blood or something like that, all he's going to do is, well, I need to get more blood. So he's always projecting himself mentally towards the next future iteration of what he's going to get. Right. Now, if we look at his wife, Mercedes, she's also defined by past and future because she longs for her past beauty. Right? She's always constantly thinking about that, but she reads obituaries. So she's looking to what the future is going to be for herself. That's not, that's not, that's not a detail I had picked up on at all. Oh, yeah. She, that's what she reads. She reads obituaries. Holy shit. Um, Dieter de la Guardia is also looking for the Gronos device. So he is always preoccupied by his potential immortality. But yet after all of his operations, he chooses to keep the cancer's organs as a reminder of the past that he's trying to escape. So again, he's never really preoccupied with the present. He's always focused either on the past and keeping his organs or looking to the future, the potential of actually getting the Cronus machine. And not to mention, you know, the fact that he's surrounded by all these angel statues that come from the past as well. They're all hanging there as if they've been punished of some sort. You know, he keeps yeah. them in these plastic bags, but they're all reminders of the time that he failed to find the Kronos machine. Angel of the Lagardium is being held back by time. He's constantly having to take care of his old uncle. But is always looking to the future, his uncle's death, in order to finally inherit this money. So he's never really trapped in present time. He's always been like, yeah. fucking hell, I have to go take care of this bastard, you know, but I want him to die so that I can actually finally have the future I want. So when I was watching the film, I kind of realized that the only person that's actually firmly living in present is Aurora who sees all these events unfold and yet no one pays attention to her. There's no one there to secure her present for her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's voiceless throughout, so she doesn't get a say in any of the events that are happening. And so what that points to for me is what I said at the beginning, the fact that there's this vampire theme in Kronos that well, you guys both brought up very well. And so the vampire itself could be this idea of preoccupation with your own history or your imminent future but the present the transition phase between those two aspects is seemingly completely forgotten and if i want to bring that back to the colonialism what i think it means is that Cronus is commenting on the fact that the u.s mexico neo-colonialist relationship is based on capitalism and is symbolic of a vampire and its prey okay and so in this case the u.s is the vampire mexico is the prey where its cultural legacy and history are drained of their significance simply used to turn a profit, essentially looking to the past and investing in it, but also as a means to secure a future and avoiding any impact that that may have on the present. Right. And right. so I feel like Del Toro 
in making Cronus, he's showing that there's a shift in Mexican ideologies at that point, but they're kind of trapped. They don't know what to do about it. Do they continue going according to what they've learned? Because, I mean, they've got a rich history of Spanish heritage and Mexican heritage and all that. But then after the NAFTA agreement, you know, you have the U.S. coming in and trying to implement everything that had to do with what they were doing, you know, just sucking everything that could be of any cultural significance to Mexico and just Americanizing it. And so that's what I kind of picked up. That was my crackpot theory on how Cronus works actually, as yeah. a commentary on colonialism. I actually think that that's pretty interesting as well when you consider uh, Aurora's coat, you know, the red and blue raincoat that she wears. Absolutely. I, it's, it's, it's something, I mean, it's pretty simple imagery, I, I think. When you think of red and blue, you just think of the like that clash, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, the real obvious one, the one that's used most often, is that blue is good and red is evil you know they're opposites the point is that she wearing the raincoat embodies them both so it's ambiguity and when you're thinking about what the present mexico in that sort of scenario torn between those that neo-colonialist scenario is Mm -hmm. is what does the present make of this how does it go forward you know especially when it's affected and torn between these two factions Uh, and I mean, I think it's kind of cute if you want to, if you want to, like, I don't know, speculate entirely, <laughs> which we do. We always do. Um, <laughs> the, the, the fact that it's a raincoat is self-preservation. So we could see that potentially as Del Toro hoping optimistically that through the, amb- the ambiguity, the present day children that will be taking this lesson will be able to push forward with a protective and cautious attitude towards American colonialism and be able to decide for themselves how the future holds i mean that would be an interesting read if you wanted to go even further than that i mean even with regards to the raincoat with like a drug addiction you know it's it's just ambiguous how her life goes forward in regards to how it affects her family that there's so much to read just there and just the simple choice of wearing a red and blue raincoat and i love that i love that we can get like that furthering of imagery and details just from simple decisions like that but that but i mean even just the smashing of the chronos machine the chronos device you know yeah the fact that that's her that's him securing her present saying okay I- i'm doing this for you okay yes. i'm gonna sacrifice myself coming to my senses to you. exactly so the thing is is that he's actually saving his granddaughter but at the same time i think that that's what del toro is saying we need to preserve them they're the ones that are going to be living here you guys Absolutely. have lived your lives who gives a shit you know what i mean and Absolutely. so i think that was that was really, really an interesting thing when he decides to just fuck this machine. Boom. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. But obviously we could go on. I mean, there's so much stuff. I mean, we could have talked so about insects stuff. in the film, you know, and how that plays into fairy tales and whatnot. I have a bunch of notes here. But I don't know. I think I'm going to have a lot less to say about Mimic. That's for sure. But Cronus to me is, would you guys recommend it? If anybody had not seen the film, does anybody recommend seeing Cronus? I, I would. I, you know, I think the, the interesting thing and the kind of sad thing is that I do believe, like, I, I believe it was Lee that mentioned it earlier. Uh, I could be wrong, but I do believe Mimic is the more accessible film which is sad because Kronos is certainly the better film and right, and right. just such a beautiful film and is so uh, meaningful. And uh, we'll get into it because I do have insight, again, from the director's cut that has a lot of commentary by Del Toro. But uh, there's, there's a reason why the movie did not make very much money and did not seem... It seemed Del Toro-y, but then at other points, it seemed like decisions maybe he wouldn't make. And there's clear reasons for that. And so... Um, 
but anyway, uh, I would recommend Synchronos, certainly. I, I absolutely love the film, and it's going to be one that I think I'll have to watch about once a year. <laughs> it is definitely one of those. Like, it's absolutely, packed, yeah. jam-packed with information, and that's the kind of shit I love. It's right in there with uh, Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water, which will probably be a lot of other people's <laughs> favorites when that time comes. Rub it in, rub yeah, it in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but no, I mean, like it's it sticks so true to to what i love about pan's labyrinth and yet is an entirely separate and interesting film in its own right that doesn't lean too heavily or recycle too much of the same material and that's what yeah. I, that surprised me and it's just a film that it's neat it's short it's functional it's got lovely imagery it's got a little bit of horror which i like i mean it's just one of those ones that when i watched i thought i don't know if my dad has seen this i i should really get him to fucking see it because it seems like something he would love you know it's it's a cool little fantasy story isolated from everything else that's been made at the time and it yeah. just kind of fits and slots neatly into this big chronology of where storytelling was going in the early 90s to 2000s and kind of pushing in that direction and it just shows that del toro was really ahead of the curve in a lot of ways when it came to understanding how fantasy should look on the screen smaller is probably the best takeaway. Small works. Uh, but I loved it. Absolutely adored it. And I really look forward to revisiting and rewatching it again and again because it's, it's just got all those elements I love. Same here. A Strickler's disease came to New York like a thief in the night. It was deadly, threatening to steal an entire generation of our children from before our eyes. Since it has proven to be virtually immune to chemical control, we had to find a new avenue of attack. We recombined DNA to create a biological counteragent. We call it the Judas Breed. Now, the cure they created has taken on a life of its own. So you think your little Frankenstein's got the better of you? They all died in the lab. But you let them out. Evolution is a way of keeping things alive. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. A fly can look like a spider. A caterpillar can look like a snake. They are breeding. Whatever it becomes, it destroys. Peter, these are lungs. Yesterday, it became human. If that thing has been around, how come nobody's ever seen it? I think we have. You see the size of that thing? We changed its DNA. Mira Sorvino, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, Charles Dutton, Giancarlo Giannini, F. Murray Abraham. Mimic. Mimic. It's directed by, obviously, Guillermo del Toro. That's what we're doing is a retrospective on the yeah. man. If that shocked you at this point in the show, then I'm embarrassed for you. But, I mean, it stars Mira Sorvino, Josh Brolin, and Giancarlo Gianni. Uh, it's essentially a film about, uh, what is it, giant insects that are taking over the city some sort. There's some sort of yeah. epidemic that they have to get rid of. And it's all horror. And it was met with, I think it was mixed reviews. I had people online telling me that they've. it was the only movie that del Toro directed that wasn't good. 
And I disagree. I think this is actually a fine film. It's not. It's not excellent. It's nothing. Mm, you know. It's, it's certainly. It's certainly not Chronos. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. But I mean, there are certain things you could. It's a remake of so many films. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Chronos included. You know, I, it, we could pick it apart. You. Were, we were talking before the show about it being somewhat like Jurassic Park and somewhat like Alien. You know, a Cronenberg version of. Alien itself. Alien, um, aliens. They have that room where they go and they find the eggs in that big, yeah, vacant room. Yeah. You know. All right, so let, let's get into this. I want to see uh, Kevin. But tell us, tell us about uh, your experience with Mimic. I saw it when I was seventeen. I liked it then. Uh, I saw it again for the first time in twenty years. I finished it this morning before the recording, so don't expect no crackpot <laughs> theory from me on this one. Uh, but I, I, I had fun watching this. I don't know. How about you, man? So you know, this is a movie that I had not seen growing up, and I had heard of it. I I'd seen the uh, back when there were video stores. I remember it sitting on the shelf, and then I remember some terrible-looking sequels coming out after it. But I never got around to watching it until probably about a year ago, and it's it's killing me because I can't remember who recommended it, or maybe I was just like, "Oh, I want to watch some more Del Toro stuff. I love his work," and maybe I found it on my own. But rewatching this movie again last night, I'm like, I just watched this movie. I mean, not even <laughs> not even maybe a year ago, a half a year ago. Like I had it is still fresh in my mind and I had forgotten I had watched it and here I am watching it again so um but no I I think it's a serviceable movie I don't think it's great but for people to say that it's Del Toro's only bad movie I don't think you can call this movie bad it could have been a lot better I think it had a lot more potential but as we've talked about before studio meddling got in the way uh Del Toro had a very clear vision and as we know I mean he's no tour he 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 knows exactly what he wants and unfortunately the studio didn't want to make the movie like he wanted to and wanted it to be more commercial, wanted it to be mainstream. Uh, you know, there's some huge plot changes from the original uh, the original script. It's really unfortunate, like I was saying, that uh, Del Toro didn't get to see his whole vision come to life. And even though he tried to have a director's cut released later, there's really not that much different than the theatrical cut. So we never got to see his full vision. But uh, in the original story, uh, the main character, uh, who is played by uh, the guy that Jason doesn't care about uh what is his name uh Jeremy Northam who plays Dr. Peter Mann he was supposed to be black and uh right. the studio actually had the audacity to tell Del Toro that mainstream audiences are not ready for a mixed race couple in a, in a big what yeah, the I'm, fuck i had no yeah. idea about that that's amazing. right it I mean, so, and I would implore you, if you're going to watch this movie, watch the director's cut and, and if nothing else for, for his commentary, because Del Toro will tell you exactly where things went wrong, exactly what they looked like before they turned into what was the final product. Um, he also wanted, uh, Josh Brolin's character was supposed to be gay and the studio wouldn't let that happen either. Holy shit. So there's like nothing then. Del Toro, this, this would have fit really well with the themes. Yeah. Del Toro really, exactly. I mean, Del Toro is smart. We know that. And we'll talk about it as the film goes on. On, but there were a lot of things he put in this picture and he put them in there for very specific reasons and there's a reason why he wanted the mixed race couple uh in the end he wanted you know the the world the the people that were saved to be not just a bunch of white people he, you know he wanted he wanted it to be uh more varied and cultured and uh you know also josh berlin's character being gay that just adds something different uh to the story and and the studio just wanted to play it safe um and i don't know if you guys know but the the movie actually went through a whole bunch of script rewrites uh 
which I mean, it's not it's not it feels atypical. It. Something I was going to comment on is yeah, the tone of yeah. it's a bit of a warring comedy horror. Yeah, yeah there's yes, a, there's a lot of mixed up tones in there. Absolutely. I mean, so it's not it's not atypical for a movie to go through rewrites, but this one went through some major versions that that changed the story completely. Uh, so the first rewrite was actually Del Toro's favorite. So he wrote the script, and then it went to John Sales, who was responsible for the Howling for Piranha, and uh, it, he absolutely loved this take. Um, but the the studio wouldn't go for it. Um, he they thought that it was a little too more. Um, a little too sick. It was maybe a little more gruesome. Um, uh, he, he, he's quoted in the commentary as saying that he wrote a totally deranged draft that I loved. I called him and said, this is the best dialogue I've ever read. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't have a lot to do with the movie we were going to make. Uh, so it's like uh, he loved the way it was written, uh, but I guess that it was just getting a little bit away from, from what he was trying to do. Um, and then uh, there's a Steven Soderbergh draft, actually, of this film. Um, that uh, he actually was the one responsible for the opening scene when the priest gets dragged into the sewer. That was imagery that Soderbergh came up with and uh, Del Toro said that he really loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so it went through these different rewrites and then uh, even further on, I believe, there there were more people that the studio got on board. Uh, I'm looking at the credit here. Um, you've got Matthew Robbins is responsible on the final product for, for the writing credits, uh, who obviously was neither of those two I mentioned before. I don't know, you know, he didn't tell the whole story. I don't know if he was his original partner or someone that yeah. uh, polished I know it for the th- We know that uh, Robbins went to work with Del Toro again when it came to Crimson Peak. He was the cool writer on that film as well. So I imagine okay. that he was sort of must have been on board from the start okay. or at some or at least was Del Toro's pick at some point down the line. Yeah. Oh, but uh this is what it was. So uh the the thing that actually uh the third revision that ended up uh kind of botching the things that we talked about earlier was from Matt Greenberg who is responsible for 1408 that John Cusack film, uh Halloween H2O, Rain of Fire with Matthew McConaughey. Uh he wrote um I think that uh, he was the one that maybe was uh, pandering to the studio, making it a little bit safer, uh, you know, and kind of changing Del Toro's vision. So uh, just just to say there's a lot of hands in the pie when it comes to this film. Absolutely. It sounds it. And it kind of feels it, too. I mean, I, I like I'm with you. I do like the film. I don't think it's a bad film at all. I do, I do think it's a film that had a lot more potential than we actually got to see on, on the screen. And I think it's one that runs its course a little lengthy. Uh, it's definitely a film that drags a bit. Uh, could have got a little into the action a little faster than it does. Uh, but I, there are pieces of it that I really like. There, uh, that's the here and there. There are little bits of humanity, a little great little character stories. It's kind of splayed along this quite generic-ish template for a kind of horror disaster movie, monster movie kind of thing. And I, I like all the elements in pieces. I don't know if they all work together perfectly but there's definitely i mean it, it kept my attention the whole time you know and i really like i did make something of whatever i mean we could say what what was lost in the intention is is lost forever essentially when they when we talk about mimic but the film itself i still feel like there was there was some information to be gained from it there was something to read into it uh i don't know if it was the intended message i don't know if it was um, a salvaging of a different message given the fact that everything got changed in the process but at the same time it's definitely a readable film and it at very least i think we uh agree that it, it does put del toro more firmly on the map when it comes to horror films i mean when we 
were talking about it's alien inspiration uh we could even go further back the way that the characters react to the drama the way that we get shots of the city it's very like invasion of the body snatchers that kind of thing uh so there's this sort of there's this echo of historical horror movies that del toro clearly wants to put a claim to somewhere in this film i still think it works really quite well i still it helped my attention it's kind of can't be fun it's not a it's yeah. not a it's not many by any means a bad movie it's just a it's not it's a it's a movie that kind of misses some of the marks it could have hit that's all i that's the, that's the general takeaway so yeah and and to talking to that point about the studio interference and i want to say there's a really good article on coming soon.net that uh kind of uh compiles all of the commentary so i watched this film with commentary i didn't have a chance because i watched it last night to take a whole bunch of notes but i found this great article uh that actually had a bunch of his commentary so that way i could just nice. use that as kind of a template so just full disclosure i am referencing their article uh but uh the interesting thing is that the studio wanted his insects which by the way were not supposed to be cockroaches at first they were supposed to be beetles uh right. and the, in, the, in the studio the executive said uh oh this is new york it should be cockroaches <laughs> Jesus and, Christ. And, and I know and and he goes and he's like what are you what are you talking about he's like they're not I don't want this to be cockroaches uh because then I'll be the guy that made the giant cockroach movie and that just sounds like a b-level d-level type movie he's like so he wanted these to be beetles at first and the executives just wouldn't have it they just said oh definitely should be cockroaches um another thing uh this is a quote from del toro he says the mimics used to have antennas but the feedback we got from the studio was a raging phone call where they said they look like bugs the mimics look like bugs what i mean i mean yes they come from bugs that's (laughs) so so in a movie about these bugs that evolve uh from bugs uh they didn't like that they looked like bugs uh and so he said but of course we've been developing the creatures for a year and a half you've seen the designs you've seen the maquettes you've seen the clay molds you've seen everything and they are bugs and he said the studio (laughs) says well, can you make them more like aliens? He said, I don't want to make them more like aliens. At this stage, we already have a functioning puppet with radio-controlled servos, animatronics. What do you mean redesign them? And then somebody uh, said a really great line. They said, can you make their teeth bigger? He said, they don't have teeth. Well, show more of their... He's, they said, well, show more of their gums. He said, they don't have gums. They have a multi-part mouth system. Well, can you give them a crazy hair? What? what? Oh, my God. What the fuck? And then he fuck? said, he said he, the giant bugs, he wanted to have crazy hair on their head. Del Toro said, trolls? Del Toro said, they don't have hair. They are insects. <laughs> and, and it's just it's just crazy. It's just And it goes on from there. So I can jump in with some more of these commentary gems. But Jesus this is what Christ. Del Toro, the auteur, was dealing with on Mimic. Just to give you an idea of... The, and the fact that this movie, as you both mentioned, is serviceable. I agree. It's got some good scares. It's got some creepy horror imagery. It's a serviceable film, and the fact that he made something watchable with that kind of interference is like kudos to you, Del Toro. Absolutely, kudos. Jesus! I'd Christ. love to see a mimic remake from Del Toro, knowing now that he can bet the budget he wants, he could probably go out and make that film. Just call it something different, you know? I think oh. it'd be really, really fun to yeah, see that clone. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I think you know we were talking about Alien a little bit earlier. I mean, there are clear references i don't know if he mentions this in the audio commentary at all i didn't watch the audio commentary commentary but i mean even when mira sorvino is underneath the city going through all the layer the the, the labyrinthian 
type of uh, sewers and all that. That's 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 Ripley. Even at the beginning of the film, there's something that I spotted. The trap, the, the trap that they used in order to trap those, well, they were supposed to be beetles, but the cockroaches, <laughs> looks like the pods that they wake up from in Aliens. Uh, in yeah. Alien. Hmm. And it was really interesting because there are all these nods. Even the light inside the helmet is, you know, it looks exactly like Ripley. And Ripley's, so there's yeah. all this stuff that's coming in, you know, even the use of uh, potions and vials. The scene inside the the... Uh, when they're in the, the the subway car, when they're picking it apart and they go through the, like how it was, uh, how it's breeding, they take the whole insect apart, they put the face together. It's exactly the same scene as the face hugger scene that there is in the first Alien when um, uh, Sigourney Weaver, well, Ellen Ripley is talking to the Tom Scarrett. You know that I thought it was really uh, cool to see this not a flat out remake of Alien, but you know that homage, he's basically you know, like yeah, an homage. And even that, I mean, look at the the fact that he's using insects. You can't bring up Cron- you, you can't not bring up Cronenberg's The Fly. There are elements of the fly in this as well. Probably. You know, just the the, the way that it, the insect looks in and of itself, the fact that it can mimic a human. I like it. I like the fact that when you're sitting down to watch a film like this, you know, you brought up Reservoir Dogs. You know, up at the beginning of the film, that is very much an homage to so many things that were going on in Hong Kong, especially. City on Fire that came out in 1987, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Del Toro is basically saying, this is on the side of the wall I want to. This is the tradition I want to be a part of. I like Scott's films. I like Cronenberg's films. And this is the side of the fence I want to be playing on. I want to be part, I want to be part of this group. And I thought that that was fun. When you look at the, the intent of the film, there is nothing but good intent in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny that you should mention an alien ripoff. Uh, this is coming from the article now. Uh, it says, Del Toro describes how he felt after the film continued to change and become more of an alien ripoff, the Mira Sorvino's <laughs> don't you touch her moment, and what essentially was the egg chamber for the mimic saying, yeah. saying, I was cattle prodded anally into learning how to shoot action. After all the cattle prodding, <laughs> I was like a frog moving his legs because he's being electrocuted. I can oh, no. say that it was painful, but I thank everyone for the flexibility I acquired. And there, there's a little joke that he goes on uh, to say later in the commentary track uh, where he basically thanks this film because of everything he learned. And, and that's having to put up with studio interference, having right. to deal with numerous script changes that were unwanted and losing some of his vision. So it's it's unfortunate. But uh, you know what? If it had to happen, it happened early on. And I think it gave him some of the flexibility and skills that he would go on to use later in his career. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I even noticed uh, how there are certain things that resembled Halloween. You know how the way that Del Toro framed certain things uh, the uh the young autistic boy, Chewie, who is looking through the window playing his spoons when he stares down and he sees that creature there. There's a scene exactly like that when um, Jamie Lee Curtis is upstairs in her window as well and she sees Michael Myers, you know, next to the clothesline. And I was like, look at that. There's these small references to little horror genres that are there as well. Yeah, that's a great shot. I love that shot. Uh, and I think that he does it very well with, with the kid. Uh, and uh, what is it? Mr. Funny Shoes that Mr. he sees? Funny shoes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Funny Shoes. Uh, there's a, there's a movie, I don't know if you guys have seen Seven Psychopaths with Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I love that yeah, film. Man, yeah. Love that movie. Absolutely love it. Colin, uh, Colin Farrell's in it. Um, but one of my favorite scenes is that Harry Dean Stanton, and I'm trying to bring it full circle because of Alien. Harry Dean Stanton plays the character, the Quaker that they talk about, that stands outside uh, by the lamppost. And it's kind of that same shot. And it's such <laughs> a good, it's such a good scene. And uh, it's so menacing. Absolutely. Uh, Harry, 
Harry Dean Stanton, rest in peace. I mean, the guy was amazing. But uh, that's it's just a small little story that he's telling in Seven Psychopaths. But I absolutely love that whole scenario. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, what I'll do is um, I'll try and piece together what little reading I did in this. And this is this following on from Jason. I mean, if Jason has to to claim a crackpot theory, then this is def- this is my crackpot theory. That's a little more <laughs> intensive in regards to what mimics about because it really is a sort of all or nothing scenario. If I get this wrong. It might either say that I'm totally off the mark. It might reflect more more poorly on where my mind went. Uh, but uh, what I want to talk about is how I think, at least in the product that we got, uh, that this is a story that actually deals with the mindset of a Christian woman after an abortion. And I'm going to try and justify that because that seems like a pretty big claim to stake. Uh, yeah, I'm going to let you go for that one. <laughs> I'm so, having a banana. <laughs> Take me away, Lee. Here we go. So let's set the scene, okay? So the film starts, a disease is affecting children in the city, carried by cockroaches, and Susan Tyler is the only one who can solve it. She does so by introducing another insect to destroy the cockroaches, thus killing the disease. Children are cured from that point forth. She remains infertile for the following three years. So if we look at the cockroaches as a disease, and the Judas breed that comes in kind of reflects maybe her child that's in that mix... Her leaving and releasing that child in that underground area is uh, a sort of a metaphor for her abortion at that point. That's removing the disease. So under these circumstances, let's say that the disease itself is something that affected the child in the womb for Susan. Uh, she takes the action, obviously, and the film doesn't postulate much more than that, so it's open. It could be, it could have been a life-threatening disease for her. It could have been for the child. It could have been uh, a disability, uh, and she decided that the child wasn't due a normal, healthy lifestyle. That, I think I'll posit that might be the read that we'll go with, but uh, as I say, I'll give more reasons as to why it might be that as we go along, but all we know is that she feels guilt over the decision. Actually, technically, she feels relief in the one scene in the bathroom. After the she cures the disease, she feels guilt, and it's actually reflected on by her boyfriend, Peter Mann, who is also taking this all very fucking lightly. Um, <laughs> he actually reflects on the fact that her Catholic guilt is is eating up at her, but technically she does relieve herself in the sense being a hell of a year, and that's when we get that flash forward for three years. So three years later, still no children, even though they were talking about it in the bathroom scene that they could have kids from this point. And all signs point to Susan being infertile. It's, it's ambiguous, maybe potentially Peter is, but it seems like he's been doing everything he can and it's not changing anything, so... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I like that he's been doing everything that he can he's what a what a hell of a trooper yeah well he did put ice in in his pants for six months apparently that's his quote so i mean that's as much as he can do apparently uh so i mean all signs point to susan being infertile and uh, the plot begins to add speculation to that notion the underground area of which the disease has been sort of rectified is that where the abortion took place and then we think about what that's attached to a neon lit church cellar that is really a drug den in disguise. So the idea there is that maybe this is a backdoor clinic. And this is one that Susan now associates as flying in the face of God. I mean, notice that the Jesus saves in the cross, the saves is missing. You know, so obviously that's that's been taken out of the title. But if we think about how that affects modern day abortions, those who want to circumvent the law, they would find a backdoor clinic. And that's how roughly they would do it. 
might be something that was in mind. This would also go to explain the recurrence of wire imagery throughout the film, uh, where one child gets caught in the underground and killed by the insects. Meanwhile, the other creates an image of the insect monster that dwells beneath the church. The abortion was a dangerous one, cheap, and the wire alludes to the old method by which abortions were and potentially still are performed. That leads us to the insect that roams the halls bearing a human face. A dark angel, as alluded to, it first leads to the closure of the clinic, then it stalks Susan in her apartment before running around the underground. I think what's trying to be communicated here is that the insect is the guilt over the abortion, not so much the aborted child itself, not so literal, it's more Susan's guilt over the loss of the child. And this, the underground then becomes a sort of a framework for Susan's mind, and and then we kind of go into how she's dealing with that guilt by the adventure that that goes forth to deal with the insects. So, I mean, the couple continue to try to get pregnant, they simply can't. Here the film deviates into its central plot. A woman attempts to come to terms with her abortion, aided by her husband, who attempts to absolve her guilt. Uh, which is something that her colleague, uh, who she goes to talk to, actually outright mentions, you came here for absolution. I can't give it to you, although he does admit that he has bias. You know, it's good that his kids were saved. I don't, I don't know what that... <laughs> you can read that as you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the resulting struggle with the insect is a fight between her faith, represented by the figures. I, I think the figures that go with them all kind of represent something. It's interesting, though, that you mentioned Josh Brolin used to be something else because he is sorely lacking a particular motive to be there. But uh, yeah. I'll kind of explain. That struggle in the underground shows that it's a struggle between her faith, which I think is represented by Manny, who carries the rosary, her interpretation of the law that she circumvented, which is represented by Leonard and the old armory, her shaken libido, and I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things down there. I mean, children killed within the tunnel, That's that could be something. Egg sacs of the insects, I mean, you could, you could, that could be a million things. <laughs> Maybe Josh could be in this section here. Maybe if uh, his character originally... Uh, was supposed to represent homosexuality it could have it could have been her own idea that her sexuality was in fact under question or she felt that it was under question it could have been something like that originally and now that's gone so it, now it's just josh is just there and he's just some dude and maybe she's into him i don't know they never really interact <laughs> so I, it's not really much to make of that one but <laughs> uh and the attacks of the insect herself at one point she's actually dragged away by one of the insects into the tunnels of the subway and that's it taking grasp of her uh, Meanwhile, her husband is there amongst it all with her at some point trying to understand the insects. She He admits he knows less about it than her. So it's kind of his attempts at mitigating her guilt and these pressures. And his solution ultimately, and maybe chaotically, is to blow everything up. You know, after all these, all these figments are, are dying, maybe it's a lost cause on his behalf and for her behalf on trying to redeem these things. His solution is to just fuck it all away and blows it up. Uh, which, I, I, I'm no psychotherapist, but I'm going to say it was probably a bad call. Uh, and <laughs> I think if we read the culmination of this in the final scene, we could get that if, ambiguous imagery there lets us confirm that it was probably a bad call. Uh, the culmination of the struggle is a final scene in which Susan finally reconnects with Peter and the two share an impassioned hug. That's pretty good. There's a big swell of music. It's all very tri triumphant and heroic. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, though. For one, the reconnection with Peter and his utterance that at last they can have a child. I'm pretty, like, I don't know how you felt. I thought that was pretty weird, like, when you kept saying <laughs> that at the end. Yeah, it's like, we 
can have yeah. a baby. We can really? have a baby. Like, whoa, that you, you killed those insects. That's a bit fucking... Like, yeah. that turn you on? Is that how it works? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean... Bug fetish. <laughs> well, can I, can I go back? Kevin wants to say something about bug fetishism. Yes, Kevin? <laughs> Uh, you know what? You're not you're not far off, actually. Uh, w- would you believe that in the original script that Del Toro wrote, that uh, the toward the ending, uh, it was going to be a huge orgy with all the uh, female uh, Judas bugs, and then the huge male Judas bug literally attached to one of the females, and then running down the sewers after the heroes while still attached. Jesus Christ. Nice. Uh, yeah, so, they I mean, decided I don't know what that, that means in this interpretation. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, do with it what you will, but there actually was this sexual, uh, you know, tone in the film between the bugs, and literally they were going to be showing that, like, uh, you know, like the king, or, you know, implant, uh, impregnating all the, the female bugs. But, yeah, I mean, what weird imagery that would have been. And uh, that's one that the studio cut, and I'm like, okay, I kind of get that one. You know, I'm not, like, not as crazy as the other ones <laughs> where it's like, oh, but, uh, <laughs> should have been in there, definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, should have been uh, in there. I agree with Lee. That should have been in there. And what Del Toro says of the scene, he says Matthew, uh, so his writing partner Matthew, came up with a disgusting image, which was to have the final chase happen after we see the cl- a clusterfuck, literally clusterfuck of insects in the wall, and you see the male coming after them with the female still attached to its penis. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, fucking hell, that would have been awesome. <laughs> Opening <laughs> yeah. night. <laughs> uh yeah and uh you know he says that uh, the studio thought it was repulsive repugnant and the way obviously that can... yeah, yeah. Like, yeah i love this this is so hot broad mainstream appeal is what i was going for <laughs> Fuck that. and and he said though basically the way that it could con- the way they can control you very easily is budget it was also sadly very expensive and so it was cut from the film i could see that oh yeah bug fucking is uh yeah it's something you have to invest in yeah <laughs> as a career path i mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, what I was saying with Peter is that obviously that line that we could have a baby. That's that's yeah. fucking weird. Uh, this and I mean, there's a couple interpretations even in this one image you could go for. I mean, this just might be Peter jumping at conclusions to his attempts at a breakthrough with the with regards to his therapy with Susan's guilt. Uh, but I mean, think about the rosary uh, that she holds. Susan holds, and, and I mean, that's, you could say, yes, oh, good, she's rekindled her faith, but very more likely. Uh, it's important that, to note that she hangs it behind Peter's back, uh, as if to keep it from him, as if, like, to, to salvage the fact that she holds that guilt still, no matter what he's tried to do. And she hugs him yeah. and pretends it's all right, but realistically, she's not forgiven herself. She still requires her faith. And despite Peter's attempts to blow it up, has done nothing but make sure to hide it from him rather than keep it out in the open. And then there's also Chewie, the little boy she saves and Manny's assumed grandson, uh, who seems to require special needs. His inclusion in the hug suggests that this harmony involves potentially adopting Chewie. And perhaps this is the child Peter refers to, you know, this is the baby they can finally have. Yeah. Uh, but uh, perhaps this is also progress for Susan, uh, or more likely this is potentially further guilt. She meets Chewie earlier in the film and takes particular notice of how talented he is. She inquires into his schooling and Manny informs her he cannot attend because of his special needs. So that's something she actually learns from him. Uh, And this is where I'm bringing back what I was saying earlier. If we identify that potentially the abortion was due to a fear of a child with a disability, her reconciliation by adopting Chewie would not absolve her of her guilt of originally having carried out the abortion and perhaps would actually further antagonize her. That the resolution here even could be that Peter's idea of saving 
or helping Susan was to adopt rather than to consummate. And in that idea, we get Chewie, who, yes, helps her on a base level. She finally, you know, gets a child that would have been like the child that she had potentially, you know, and, and therefore she can really, she can live as if nothing had ever happened. But that's not a solution for the guilt, you know, that's not something that actually helps her. And so I think that his inclusion there is very ambiguous in that. And I think we know that particularly, and we can read that because in Chewie's hand, and the camera lingers on it in the final shot, is the wire frame of the fucking Judas breed that he carries with him, Mr. Funny Shoes. That signifying of her guilt that has carried around in wire form that draws in that abortion idea is in the frame in this one climactic hug together with them. So it's not fixed. Nothing is fixed. This is not the triumphant uh, moment that the music would help you believe, uh, which, I mean, was already kind of overbearing throughout the film as well anyway, but I mean, it definitely doubles down on this triumphant, we've done it, we've saved the day, and I think Del Toro is there actively acting against all this inst- all these instincts to make this sort of sell-out, happy-ending tradition of uh, yeah, we survived yeah, yeah. the monster. Very in line with Alien, that's just ambiguous, what happens next just shot into space. This is that embodied into the personal struggles of Susan. And I think that's, that's what something I could, I piece together thinking about the film. I mean, I could be way fucking off, but like if I am, and then that says a lot about where my brain goes in these kind of things. You know, it's, I mean, that definitely goes way deeper than I would have thought, but I can kind of see, I can see the abortion, uh, you know, and the, uh, well, what backs up the abortion theory in my mind is the adoption at the end because that could so clearly be read as, you know, don't have a, an abortion. If you don't want a child, give it up for adoption because now this child can have a life and have a family. And so in the end, by adopting this kid, I think that maybe that that kind of represents the her her arc and her growing and uh, doing mm-hmm. the right thing because uh, she's embracing the idea of adoption, which is the exact counter argument of abortion. Yeah, yeah. She makes that act in, in, in sort of attempting to piece together what she's lost. I, that kind of makes sense. I, I do think that uh, the imagery does provoke the idea that it's Peter who makes that call for her, but it's definitely, I think it deals with uh, the mentality in that underground of her going through that process. I, again, it's like, it's, it's not exactly the most elegant of, of fucking metaphors, is it? I mean, <laughs> it's about a fucking, it's a, it's a monster movie with insects. It's not a cool thing to be talking to, to, to ring abortion in with that. It's difficult to discuss in any real way because it feels like it kind of simplifies things to tell story but i mean it could not be about abortion that's what i also want to say is that it could easily be about political differences sterility could be anything you know that the fucking it could be it could be read as just like the religious differences between the two her holding on to her catholicism and her guilt at hiding that from her husband and her husband's atheism or something like that and his, his addiction to science and, and progress and that 15 minutes of fame that he wants and her reclusive nature throughout the film suggests that maybe she stands opposed to that you know there's many ways to read it that doesn't have to go fucking so heavy onto straight up abortion but i mean it's it's something you know there's definitely a, 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 the whisperings of a, of a deeper story lying beneath this the difficulty is that it's a two-hour film that all those little bits and pieces that i'm describing happen about 15 minutes apart from each other you know so it's hard to it's hard to piece together that telling when there's so much filler so it's hard to feel like it's as rewarding to figure it out i suppose uh well to me it goes in with uh, transhumanism, the fact that there's a, a clear hybridity that's going on. You know, to me, this is the mixing of church and state. 
if you will. And so if ever you're trying to kind of break those two things apart that are supposed to be, and if you look at how the U.S. has always been one of those things like one nation under God, and then after that it bombs countries, and then you're like, what you guys, you're picking and choosing your stories now, right? And so abortion is kind of anti-religion, if you will. I, I'm pro-choice. I want a woman to be able to do whatever the hell she wants uh, and then make the choices that she needs to make. So if we're going with uh, with Lee, you know, the idea that she's holding on to that guilt, I think that that's society that's imposing that guilt on her based on the fact that these systems of beliefs have not crumbled yet. You know, we have this natural versus unnatural debate that's constantly there. And I think that, you know, the idea of having that Judas beetle, that bug that is going to be, you know, that, that treacherous thing, you know, you can't necessarily have faith in uh, something so unnatural. And you're like, yeah, but at the same time, you guys have been tinkering with these things for so long. Is it something that science is supposed to be an evolution? Are we questioning that evolution of science? Or are we going to try to bring religion and folklore into this? And I think that Del Toro, in his conversations, that's exactly what he's trying to get to throughout the entire film. I mean, look at what Gianni sells at one point. He says, you take something and make it a man. A man that's not a man. And you're like, well, that's exactly what it is. It's a hybrid man-looking thing that's not necessarily man, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, you're trying to go into that. And adoption is one of those things that you could call a hybrid family. It's a family that's reconstructed from some, from something. And there's nothing unnatural about that. And I think that if you're going with the abortion theme that Lee's talking about, those are things that we can pitch together. Yes, religion is something of a staple in the United States, but there is a certain hypocrisy in trying to say, well, you need to uphold this and you need to uphold that on the other side. So I think that if you want to, there is a clear commentary on the fact that hybridity isn't necessarily something bad. Okay, you can't look at it as something that's going to plague society. It could have its advantages as well. And one of the advantages is, if you're talking about sterility, the fact that you can adopt. It's not something that's supposed to be bad. There's one thing that I picked up on uh, just quickly as well, is uh, the first time we actually get a glimpse of the bug's head is when Mira Sorvino actually puts her hand down that drain. And so I thought it was kind of funny that in Kronos, the first time Jesus holds the machine it bites him in the hand and then you also have in you know mimic the first time that this bug decides to go after something it's a hand so we have that mirror imagery that del toro has been using so we yeah. might actually it might actually show up in, in different movies after that definitely, as well definitely. even yeah. the, the opening of the mouth of the bug is going to be kind of what he does in blade 2 as well with those vampires it'll be fun to bring that back <laughs> Yeah, I thought it's so funny watching these one after another, at least a couple of days apart, though. You know, I watched Kronos first, and then I saw her get bitten by the bug. And, I mean, that was the exact first imagery I went to, was him holding the Kronos machine and getting bitten for the first time. It was I was go. like, oh, he did it again. There it is. <laughs> cool. I don't know. Do you guys have anything else left? Would you recommend Mimic to, uh, to uh, an audience that is still innocent, that needs a little bit of religious symbolism mixed in with bug imagery? <laughs> I, you know, I think that, honestly, again, like I said earlier, Mimic is is a more accessible film than something like Kronos. Uh, it's nowhere yeah. near as good, but it's still a serviceable film. I think it's fun if you're a horror person, if you like a monster movie person. You mentioned it earlier, I believe, Jason. But if you like monsters, if you like horror, uh, there's some good scares in there. There's some creepy stuff. I say go for it. If that's if that's your deal, I really think that uh, I think that you'd like it. Um, you know, and and it's just like I would implore you to if you want something with a little more meaning. You know, let's get back into things like Kronos or or some of his future efforts that you'll be talking about. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, what I heard about uh, Mimic before actually watching it was that it was a real dark horse in his lineup. 
And I kind of expected a lot fucking worse than what Mimic actually was. It is, a, as, as Kevin keeps saying, it's a very serviceable film. It does show off quite a lot of good elements. Uh, it's, it tells a decent story. It even might have something readable behind the, in the subtext. You never know. But uh, it, is, it, is it as grand or as, as elaborate as Kronos? No. But it certainly is a watchable, fun time. The campy elements actually do kind of enhance it a little bit. It makes it a little more fun homage to the 80s kind of horror monster movies. Uh, it's just, a, it's, it's a good time. It's, it's a little long, but it's a good time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think everyone should actually go in and, and watch this film. Uh, it, it does feel like a 90s movie, the pacing, the way mm. it is, you know, the way that it's shot. It does feel like a studio. It's very closed off. There's not that much stuff. You know, you'll have these overhead shots of the city and whatnot. But at the same time, I think that, you know, Del Toro is actually really good at building tension because I'm not a guy who likes horror films. And I actually got into this one a little bit more than I was expecting. You know, I had a, I think the last time I watched a horror film that came from the 90s was something like Event Horizon. And you can clearly see that there's a similar aesthetic, even if they're probably coming yeah. from two different companies. And so, you know what? I like this movie. And uh, I now I, I kind of want it as well just to add to my – I'm going to probably be getting up uh, to par on the Del Toro movies that I have in my collection. And Mimic is definitely mm -hmm. one that I want to put on again. I'd love to see – a shorter version of it though it is a tad long like lee was saying a little bit earlier at a, an hour and 51 minutes it could clearly be 15 minutes shorter a nice you know Absolutely. 90 minutes like chronos would have been perfect for me you know Absolutely. cut out this there's a lot of you know like you said there was between to get into the underground uh, yeah there's like the a, just film, a slot of yeah. just talking and walking around and not really anything happening i don't know why that exactly. wasn't taken from the director's cut <laughs> you know yeah because the, the whole movie should have been underground that, that to me was one of yeah. those places you know to turn that place if you want to go with religious allegory make it hell underground that's exactly <laughs> where they are they're trapped in hell and so i figured that yeah but uh I'm, I'm gonna recommend it i think that if you guys are in for some want something that's really easy on the brain that has a few scares that are fun and you want to have some a little bit of campiness a little bit of be fun mimic is fine it's a fine film it's not excellent it's not great is it part of del toro's filmography yeah and it fits nicely in there because of the fact that he loves monsters and this is him playing with it he learned a lot from the film fine but at the same time it only made him a better filmmaker and we're going to be able to visit that with the devil's backbone uh, did you guys notice at all? Uh, the first thing that struck me when I watched the film, the opening credits looked a lot like Seven from Fincher. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. You recognize yeah, the creepy imagery and everything. Well, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. So in the commentary, you know, Del Toro was talking about it as the movie starts, and uh, he said that he was planning on doing that regardless. He didn't crib it from Seven, but he already had that idea. And then he says that he went to go see Seven, and and he goes on to say, "I was shocked that now I had to lose a lot of the ideas that we had for the look of the film." But the one thing oh, that man. stuck in my mind was how great the title sequence of that movie was. Um, the title sequence of Seven was impeccable, and it opened a whole whole new era so we became obsessed with hiring the same designers uh kyle cooper and imaginary forces and he says the idea was to make a subtle joke about what experience was to shoot on the, or shoot this movie by putting a bug with a pin through it and being dragged over my credit directed by <laughs> it can finally be revealed oh, why that image is i there. was thinking about that he's got that fucking that's butterfly brilliant. that's trapped so in his, by that, his name and yep. i was like why did he choose that one yeah that is that's <laughs> is so cool sums up his entire experience of having to make this film with all the studio interference. <laughs> oh, I love this uh, trivia. I wish I wish wish I had this all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah there we go. We have to bring Kevin trivia with Kevin yeah, for one just, minute. Yeah, a and he just shoots off a bunch of 
things. Hey, I, I love movies. I love talking to you guys. So, you know, I'll come back anytime you ask me. Cool. All right, Lisa, shall we close this out, sir? Let's do it, man. All right, cool. Thanks, Kevin. This is a great time. It's really, really fun. Uh, a lot of good insight, too. And I love the fact that you brought this trivia because it really adds another dimension, something that we normally don't have on the show. And I really, really yeah. appreciate it. And I'm pretty sure the audience is going to appreciate it, too. So how about you tell us where we can find you online, sir? Any last closing thoughts with that as well would be welcome. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me on, guys. Uh, it's been really fun. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and talking to you online, so it was great to finally be a part of it. Uh, I do a podcast every week. We do two episodes a week. It's called Real Spoilers. So the best way to find us is to subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Real Spoilers. You can go to Facebook.com slash Real Spoilers. Join the discussion there. I know that Jason is a part of what we call the League of Show Sharers, and it's a place where you don't even, obviously a lot of people, most of them listen to the podcast, but to be truthful, you don't even have to to have a fun time there we talk about movies games pop culture stuff uh it's a great discussion there so uh join us there and if you want to follow me personally on twitter follow me at kevin r bracket and that is bracket with two t's awesome cool. so, so efficient too yeah and you guys you should tune into real spoilers it is a really fun show Absolutely. avoid the mother episode because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about <laughs> but <laughs> everything else is fun and uh, but yeah so the latest episode what was the latest episode kevin uh we are uh by the time this airs we just put up the snowman starring michael fassman uh, oh that's gonna be a good conversation <laughs> oh yes and uh, i want you guys to go in if you guys get a chance out there to go and download their uh episodes on 50 shades of gray and 50 shades darker it is fantastic they bring in a sex therapist to do it it is a wonderful <laughs> conversation you'll learn a lot about yourselves and your partner so good. go ahead and do that and yeah, not not to mention not only do we bring in the sex therapist twice for both the movies we bring in our wives to talk about it too so that's it's just Oh, it's a crazy fun cool. time. I have not listened to this. I, that is like right up a list of things to do now. Oh, I, I, I was washing the dishes and I had to stop. I had tears in my eyes. That was so fucking funny. I love this. Like, I'm going to break oh, dishes. Man. I can't do this anymore. Lee, where can we find you online, sir? Yeah, uh, you can no longer find me at Big Pick Reviews. We are uh, we haven't said it on the show, but we're at our we're on our social independence phase at the moment where we're no longer sort of super over overstating where our spot is on the social medias. Yeah, but uh, you can now find me at Lee, at Lee Paul Brady. You might have heard the robot in the last episode and Blade Runner <laughs> announced that for me. I got to do it myself this time. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I also no longer write for Big Picture Reviews. Big Picture Reviews is closed. So really, the show, AtlanticScreenConnection.com, uh, Twitter is where you'll find me these days until some other crazy project takes my fucking whims. So, uh... That's me, Jason. Yep, and you can find me at Jason B. Michael on Twitter. Please follow the show at Atlantic SC. Check out our Facebook page. We also have a website now at AtlanticScreenConnection.com. Check it out. We have the playlists that are up there. We want to thank everyone for tuning in uh, to our latest episode on uh, the first talk that we had on Blade Runner. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show. That's it for us this week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Kevin, you can throw in a bye as well. Goodbye. No, I'm not gonna. <laughs> nope, using it. No, don't use that. Oh, God. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> See ya. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore.
Goodbye.